All right, open your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You might be interested to know that uh, our youth are going through the same text that we're using on Sunday nights. So Caleb and I are coordinating that because on Sunday mornings I'm preaching through Philippians, but Sunday nights the youth would miss that. So, so Caleb is going to take our youth through the same evening text. So they're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 tonight as well. And that'll be the case throughout the series. So I, I think that's pretty cool and, and appreciate him doing that. Tonight we're going to be talking about something that almost seems out of place, not in the Bible, but it seems out of place in the book almost. And the reason I say that is because Paul today, as we were looking in chapter 1, Paul was talking about how his chains advance the gospel. He has this, his, this passion to, to know Christ and to share Christ. We talked about all those kind of things today that that's what he's living for. He's living for Christ and to share the gospel with those who don't yet know him. And, and so that's all in chapter 1, and we won't rehash that, but that was this morning. Yeah, and so here's, look in chapter 1, verse 27 to get the context. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. Notice this, that you will stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you'll be saved and that and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All right? So, and, and so Paul, this, this very passionate plea. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he starts talking about disunity in the church or at least the potential for disunity in the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Now, it almost seems strange that Paul in chapter 1 verse 27 is talking about you fight together in one spirit, one purpose, one mind. And then in chapter 2, he opens that chapter by talking about, listen, be careful. Be careful that you're not divided. Be careful that you're not doing things for the wrong motives. And why do you suppose he was saying that? He was saying that because that had already permeated that church at Philippi. If I were to take the time and ask you, how many of you know of a church that split? I bet a lot of you could raise your hands. If I were to say to you, how many of you have ever been in a church that split? Again, I bet a lot of you could raise your hands. Or if I were to say, how many of you have been hurt in a church fight? I bet a lot of you could raise your hands. Isn't it strange that God's people sometimes can't get along with one another. Um, Tom Rayner has he he has a blog and and I saw a recent blog uh, that he put out and it was the title of the blog was 25 silly things church members fight over." 
And, and here's what he did. He, he, just, he just put out a, a, a question, a survey on Twitter. And the survey on Twitter was, you know, what kind of things have you seen a church fight over? And he said his Twitter account blew up. He said a lot of people were eager to share their fights and their schisms and their conflicts with the congregation. Uh, and he said, you know, there were the normal things like the temperature in the sanctuary or the color of the carpet or the order of the service or the color of the walls. He says, but, but then there were some unusual things, just downright absurd things. And so he picked his 25 favorite things or 25 favorites of the silly things that church members fight over. I'm not going to read all 25 but I am going to read a few, uh, several of them to you because it's just like, seriously? Or, I mean, did that really happen? Uh, here, here's number one. And these are in no particular order. Number one, argument over the appropriate length of the service. Wait a minute. Try to read this again. Argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Not whether or not he could have a beard, but whether or not it was too long. Number two, fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or use the land for a cemetery. I'm dying to know how that was resolved, you know. <laughs> Number three, a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. Number four, a church dispute over whether or not to install... I don't get this one. Whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, guys, we're kind of used to that. But, you know, women, I thought they always had stalls in the restrooms. Uh, number five, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Number six, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. They argued over it for 45 minutes. Number seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. <laughs> I just want to know who took the picture. I didn't know they had cameras back then. Um, here's another one. A big church art. This is amazing. This one's for Steve Robbins. A big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was 10 cents off. Some, literally, someone finally, after they argued for a long time, somebody finally gave a dime to resolve the issue. A dispute in the church because the Lord's... <laughs> a, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. <laughs> <laughs> Business meeting argument over whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. And it took two business meetings to resolve that. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one, that, in one of the churches, they, they moved from Folgers to Starbucks. And in the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. And members left the church because of it. Major conflict when the youth borrowed a crock pot that had not been used for years. How dare they? Another one, an argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs in the church meal. <laughs> you can do that only if you balance it with angel food cake in the dessert, right? An argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. A disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. 
I mean, this is serious stuff, right? Just two or three more here. An argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. Another one. Some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Thus, the second Electro Church, Electro Lux Church was born. An argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. A fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. An argument over whether the fake dusty plant should be removed from the podium. Oh, we read these and there's some others. It's like, well, that's just silly. That's just absurd. But you know what they are? They're distractions from what the church should be doing. Silly? Yes. Absurd? Absolutely. Distractions? No doubt, no doubt about it. And it's amazing how something so small, so insignificant, can keep God's people from doing the significant. Listen to me, church. The devil likes nothing better than to take the insignificant and keep us from doing the significant. If he can get us to argue over that which doesn't matter, then he can keep us from doing those things that do matter. And so, Paul understood this as well. You see, Paul understood that every church, regardless of how healthy it may be, every church has the potential to have church fights and division. I want you to answer a question for me. I want you to participate this, this evening. Why do you suppose churches find it so easy to fight with one another? Well, why is it that, that I, I've just given you one reason, but why do you suppose it's so easy for churches to fight with one another? Everybody's afraid to answer. Sir? Yeah, it's about me. Yeah. Yes, selfish nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to suggest that you do this. In fact, I'm going to ask you not to do it, at least here. Uh, but did you know that you can actually get on YouTube, in the search, you can ch search church fights on YouTube. And, and they're recorded there. I mean, you can watch church fights on YouTube. Where, you know, everybody's got a phone now. And when a fight breaks out, guess what the members do? Let me get my phone out. I'm going to film that. I mean, that's going to be fun. I'm going to put that on YouTube. And the devil is laughing at us all the time. There are two factors that threaten the unity of a church. One factor is false teaching. The other factor is disagreeing members or, or disunity. Uh, what I have found is that it's, it's, it's a lot easier to recognize false teaching. Our antennas are more up for false teaching. We, we can recognize that we, and, and by and large, the, sometimes the church is deceived, but, but by and large, we, we recognize the false teaching, teaching and push back against it. We see the devil behind the false teaching and push back against it. But disagreements and disunity, it's harder to, for us to recognize that because 
Our own egos are involved in that. Our own passions are involved in that. Our own pride is involved in that. And we think that we are right and everybody else is wrong. And so it's harder for us to recognize the devil in disunity than it is in false teaching. The one danger that threatened the church at Philippi was this very issue. This very issue of disunity. Uh, When things really seem to matter to people, people tend to collide with others because it may not matter to them as much or they may have a different opinion. They may have a different viewpoint. And, And so, because we are... God's people does not guarantee that we're not going to sometimes be used by the devil. Let me show you what I'm talking about, and then we'll dig into this. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 4. This church that Paul started, this church that that Paul planted, this church that Paul had discipled, this church that appears in the Scripture as a wonderful, godly congregation, also struggled to some degree with disunity. In Philippians chapter 4, and we'll talk about this in detail later, but in Philippians chapter 4, he says, verse 2, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How would you like to have your name in Scripture because you couldn't get along with somebody? But Paul names these people, and so when we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, what Paul is talking about in in this passage of Scripture is not theoretical. That's what I want you to understand. What Paul is talking about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is not just a possibility. There was disunity in the church at Philippi, And Paul was addressing it both in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. Now, so let's see what he says. He begins uh, chapter 2 with, what's the first word in chapter 2, verse 1? At least in NIV, what's the first word? Chapter 2, verse 1? If. If. At least in, in the NIV. If. Do you, how many times do you see the word if in the first verse? Four times. Verse 1 contains four clauses, each of which begins with the word if. Look for it. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Now, why was he using this word this way? Uh, In the Greek, the tense and the form used here assumes that these conditions are true. It's it's not using the word if as in if it's there or if it's not. In fact, it's just the opposite. In this particular, you might want to write in your Bible or somewhere, uh, this particular Greek word assumes that these conditions are true. It assumes that these conditions are there. Or you could simply translate the word if by using the word since. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have comfort from His love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, since you have tenderness and compassion. Paul says, because these four four things are true, 
you ought to be able to get along with each other. So let's dig into these four clauses that he talks about. He talks first about if or since you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. The Greek word translated encouragement is periklesis. And it actually means one who stands by to encourage us. It's the very similar word to paraclete in John 14 uh, and John 15 and John 16, referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one called alongside to help us. That's the word parakleo, parakleesis. It's the same kind of idea that he's saying, if there is any, look how he describes it, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ... All these things that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, those things that come from being united to Him. If that is true, if you are united in Christ, and number two, if any comfort from His love. The idea here is that because you have experienced His love, if that is true, that you have experienced His love, and if any fellowship with the Spirit, that is, if you have a connection With the Holy Spirit. We should be motivated to get along with one another because of our partnership with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if any tenderness and compassion. And and this one is talking about simply the the longings of the human heart. That if if you've got a compassionate bone in your body, we would say. And you don't even have to be a Christian to, to experience this one. If there's any compassion in you whatsoever. You know, for example... We all have this compassionate side to us where, like, if you hear of a story, sometimes you can be moved by a story that you hear, and you don't even know the people involved. I, I, I do it all the time when I'm, I'm reading through the Twitter account, and I see these news stories about uh, a child that's been in, abused or, or an, uh, a soldier that was slain in, in Afghanistan. And, and, and all of a sudden, my heart is moved. I'm, I'm burdened. I'm, I'm moved by this. It's something that comes deep within me that I'm concerned for these people. I'm concerned for their families. Paul was saying, this is what I'm talking about. So if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that is, you have a relationship with Him, if there's any comfort from His love, if you've experienced His love, if there's any fellowship from being connected with the Holy Spirit, and if there's any tenderness or, or compassion within you, then, verse 2, this is what he's getting at, then... Make my joy complete by being like-minded. You might want to underline that, like-minded. Having the same love, underline that. Being one, underline that, in spirit and purpose. So let's talk, let's talk about what, you, what these things mean. When he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. What do you think like-minded means? You talk to me tonight. What does like-minded mean? Huh? Okay, one accord. One accord. Good. What else? Say it louder. Same perspective. All right, very good. Literally, this word could be translated, it's, it's the visual at least, of two clocks striking at the same moment. Now, some of you younger folks don't even know what I'm talking about because you're, you're, you're saying, what, is it? what do you mean two clocks striking? But you've... Some of you remember the old grandfather clock? Dong, dong. Well, the idea is that if you had two grandfather clocks, they would both go dong at the same time. That's like-minded. That's the word picture here. That the clock, two clocks striking at the very same 
moment. Paul says, I want to tell you something. If you've ever been connected to Christ, if you've ever had the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if, if there's any love in your heart whatsoever, then you need to make sure that you're working at being like-minded. That doesn't mean that you believe everything the same way. It means that you're, it doesn't, it doesn't mean uniformity, but it means unity. There's unity. Then he goes on to say, then make my joy complete, complete by being like-minded, having the same love. That is, our hearts are to be on the same thing. We, we're loving the same things. We have the same love. We're loving Jesus. We're loving the gospel. We're loving uh, uh, the lost. We have the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Being one in our souls beat together in tune with Christ and each other. Uh, we, we love the same things together. And then he goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In verse 3 and 4, he gives us three great causes of disunity. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, I want you to tune in and make sure you hear this. Three great causes of disunity. The first one is selfish ambition. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's always the danger that people are working to advance their cause rather than the cause of Christ. There's always the danger that people are working to advance what's best for them rather than what's best for the church. There's always the danger that, that people are working to, to accomplish their agenda instead of God's agenda. Remember what I read today in chapter 2, verse 21? Let me read it to you again. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We all have to fight that tendency, don't we? We all have to fight that tendency to say, this is what I want, this is what I think, this is what I believe we ought to do. And we all have that selfish ambition to advance the work of ourselves rather than to advance the work of the Lord. And then there's another one. Look what he says. Another danger is this one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit would have the idea of seeking personal prestige. Prestige is for many people an even greater temptation than wealth. I want to be admired. I want to be respected. I want a seat on the platform. I want credit for what I've done. I want people to have a good opinion of me. I want my name to be printed in the bulletin. I want people to know who I am. This idea of personal prestige. I want to be flattered by people. The idea of personal prestige, Paul said, listen, that, that will drive disunity into the church. Don't do anything out of vain conceit, seeking personal prestige. I, I, I can't think of anybody in our church in fact, I can't think of anybody in, in my previous church. But I know that, that I have encountered sometimes people who have gotten upset because they didn't get the recognition that others got. Well, you, you mentioned them, but you didn't mention me. And that, my friend, is simply the devil working in your heart to say you deserve the recognition. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to sow seeds of discord in your spirit, in your heart, so that he could spread it to others. Does that make sense? 
Then he goes on to say this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Talk to me for a minute. What happens when we don't do that? In, in, how, would you do, how would you describe it if, if we don't practice this? How would you describe what happens when we don't practice this? What? Me, 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 me. Yeah. You know what? what, what we, we tend to begin to look at people differently. What was once a brother in Christ is now my opponent. What was once a sister in the Lord is now my enemy. What was once the family of God is now a struggling congregation. So Paul says, church, I don't want you to go down that road. Church, I don't want you to experience that. And so he says, and I want you to look at verse 4, because there's a, there's a phrase here, three words here, that I don't want you to miss. Each of you. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So you need to ask yourself the question, when you're about to get upset, when you're about to feel like, boy, I just don't like that, and I don't like the preacher, and I, don't, I want the preacher to do this. And I, I, when, whenever that starts to gnaw at you, you need to remember what Paul says here. Each of you should look not only to his own interest. Am I just looking at my own self? Am I just looking at my own interest? Do I just have my own desires and agenda in mind? Each of you should look not just on your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Whew. We could just get churches to practice the first four verses. It would save many churches, wouldn't it? Now, I've told you this many times in 21 years that I've been your pastor, but this is a very good time to say it again. Congregation, we need to continue. God has blessed us for 21 years. We need to continue to pray and pray that God would guard our unity. That is a precious thing. That is a powerful thing. And we need to continue to pray that, guard, that God guards our unity. Then... As if to say, okay, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example of someone who, who looks not on his own interest, but also on the interest of others. Then he says in verse 5, and this is where it really begins to get powerful. This, here's what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, all, all of a sudden we're beginning to say, all right, this is going to get heavy. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here's the attitude you should have, the mind of Christ you should have. You should have the mind of Christ that, that looks at others rather than himself. And, and the perfect example of that is Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Let's do a couple of word studies real quick. Who being in the very nature God. What does that mean? In the very nature God. It means that he was 100% God. He was absolutely 100% God. He was in the very nature. He was God. But 
He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The word grasp means something to be held on to. If I'm grasping this box, I'm holding on to it, all right? And it, the text says he is in the very nature of God, but he did not consider this equality with God to be something to be held on to. He was willing for you, for me, he was willing to let go of that. Now, that doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. It doesn't mean that, and we'll talk about this in a moment where it says he emptied himself, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. It doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. He just ceased to, to, to demand to be treated like God. We'll look at that in a second. Keep reading. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The greatest example of a servant we've ever seen is none other, of course, than Jesus Christ. He made himself, the Bible says, of no reputation. One translation says, he emptied himself, verse 7. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It means that he emptied himself. What does that mean? Well, first of all, three, three possibilities, if you want to write these down, three possibilities. It could mean he laid aside his divine nature. I mean, you could translate it that way, that, that he laid aside his divine nature, but I believe that that's an impossibility. He continued to be the Son of God. He continued to be God in flesh, so he did not lay aside his divine nature, but some would translate it that way. The second possibility is that he took on limitations, To some extent, this would be true because when he came to earth and he took on our skin, he did take on some limitations. Can you think of some limitations that I can think of at least two? Uh, He took on the the limitation of time. The eternal God suddenly stepped into time. Took on the limitation of space. The eternal God who, who is everywhere suddenly was just in Jerusalem or he was just in Damascus or he was just on the Sea of Galilee. So he took on those kind of human limitations. That's not, all that, that's not really what this is talking about either. The third possibility is this. He gave up his heavenly privileges. He gave up his heavenly privileges. That seems to be what this verse is saying. He went from heaven to earth. He went from master to servant. The Lord of all became servant of all. It's beyond comprehension to to understand how he did it, but the important thing is that he did. So read it again now. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or hugged or held on to, but he made himself nothing. He gave up his privileges, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Have you ever noticed notice in the four gospels almost all the time Have you ever notice in the four gospels it was Jesus who serves others not others who serve Jesus think about that and you can correct me here maybe you can add to my list the only time I can think of someone who served Jesus was the lady who had the the bottle of, of perfume and she anointed him in essence, for his burial. I can't think of another time. Can you think of a time when somebody else served Jesus? Anybody? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Can you think of any other time?
Yeah, the same lady who washed, yeah. She anointed him with the perfume and washed her, his feet with her hair. In almost every situation, with maybe that one exception, every other situation, it is it's amazing. It, it is Jesus who is serving others rather than others serving Jesus. And Paul said, that's the mind you need to have, the mind of Christ, the mind of a servant, serving others rather than trying to let others serve you. Uh, Matthew 20, 28 says, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. And then verse 8 talks about His sacrifices. Look how it describes, And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. J.H. Jowett said, Ministry that costs nothing, accomplishes nothing. It's good. Therefore, verse 9, this, this is where Paul makes the application and it gets really, really good. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that beautiful? There's coming today, isn't there? There's coming today that those who, who refuse to bow down to Him will one day bow down to Him. Those who refuse to acknowledge Him will one day acknowledge Him. Those who refuse to cry out to Him will one day cry out to Him. Those who refuse to worship Him will one day worship Him. But watch this. You know why? Because He put you first. Put me first. He put us first. And He came in the form of a servant to the world to serve us to meet our needs down across for our sins. And Paul says, church, I want you to have that kind of perspective. I want you to have that kind of a mind. Rather than thinking about yourself, rather than seeking personal prestige, rather than seeking your agenda, church, you need to be like Jesus, humbly putting others before yourself. Rather than demanding our rights, clutching our privileges, let's seek to serve God with all of our hearts. Amen? I want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want to read you a scripture as we, as we close. Your head's bowed. I want you to hear this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you, all of you, should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
please don't let the devil cause you to turn on your brother or your sister in Christ. Please don't let the devil use you to cause disunity. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. The one you call Savior, the one you call Lord, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, putting others first, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If He cared for you that much, please care for others like He did. Please don't ever, please don't ever, please don't ever seek to destroy his bride. Father, thank you for our family, our church family. Thank you for those over the years that have made up the family of God at Mount Airy Baptist Church. Thank you for the unity and the blessed fellowship we have had and we continue to have. And may you protect us from the enemy. And Father, when we are tempted out of vain conceit, when we are tempted to seek our own agendas, when we are tempted uh, out of selfish ambition to state our cause and to cause trouble, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would convict us immediately and that you would remind us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, God, we know humanly that's not possible. That, that's not natural, but it is supernatural. And we pray that the Spirit of God would bring that about, that the Spirit of God would remind us, convict us, change us, and enable us to live in unity for the cause of Christ and for the glory of His name. And I do pray that tonight in His name. Amen.